Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help us build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Incahunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Well, hey, Anna. Hi, Dr. Robin. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? Oh, my God. We made it to week two. We made it to week two. Oh, my God. And people are listening. I know, right? It's so exciting. Like, we're watching we're watching your downloads. We're watching your subscriptions. It's really exciting. I think it's less exciting for Robin because Robin anticipated that you would support us. I, I knew I, that y'all would be listening. Yeah, I was mortified that absolutely no one was going to care and that we were going to be just talking into the universe for no one to hear. But I knew that wasn't going to be the case because we're funny. I know. Well, yes, we are. I mean, come on. I mean, I bring the beauty. I know. And I bring the boss. (laughs) And the brains. And the brains. Listen, um, a lot's happening in the world. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Um, There's so much going on, um, but I can't stop watching this impeachment nonsense. Yeah. I I wish I could steer away from it, but it's like a car accident. I don't want to know what happened or what's going to happen, but I am going so slowly (laughs) because we're all backed up by it that I can't help but look. Yeah. So can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for it. What's breaking your heart today? Oh, I think, I think I'm really broken hearted by the way in which we don't expect people to tell the truth Mm. or to listen to the truth when it's told or to even seek out the freaking truth in the first place. So look, I mean, like we're watching this impeachment happen, right? We have, um, I mean, regardless of what side of this, um, opinion or this perspective you fall on, it would seem to me that you should want or desire to know what really happened. Right. And, you know, we, we watched, I mean, uh, uh, let's be honest, like one of my favorite brain crushes. I mean, I am, it's, it's no secret to some people. I am not so secretly addicted to Rachel Maddow. Um, I think she's, I think her brain is so sexy. Like I can't even like stand it. I think Rachel Maddow's brain is so sexy. Like kinda I can't like even mine. stand it. Yeah. Rachel Maddow's. Um, yeah. Um, ex- just like Rachel Maddow's. Um, and I, uh, I, I mean, you know, we watched her get this amazing interview with, yes, someone who is problematic. I mean, Parnas is not, I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, you interview a scumbag, you you get scumbag content. Yeah. But I got to tell you that I can't imagine in that two hour long interview that every single freaking thing he said was a lie. Right. I can't imagine that he 
told so many lies that absolutely none of it was the truth. And if that's the case, why don't people, i.e. Republican senators and the president and the president's administration, want to at least hear what the truth is? I mean, it just, it boggles my mind that we are so partisan that we aren't willing to explore or interrogate the truth so that we can all feel like we know what's going on. Right. I mean, I recognize that that's partisan. I say that and that's a partisan statement, but I just, I, I mean, I want to know the truth in all aspects of things that go on in my life. I mean, I want to know the truth in conversations I have with people. I want to know the truth in, you know, the work that I'm doing within the church. Like I want to feel like there's an element of, 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 of integrity and, and, and awareness in the information that I'm receiving. And I just, I'm so boggled by this. Yeah. But so much about hiding the truth is, is power, right? So like, if we cannot tell the truth because telling the truth has consequences, if we cannot tell the truth and we can, we can continue to hold power and leverage power in a way to, to get our in, you know, like do the thing that we want to do. And so I think that, and I just started reading Democracy in Chains, which I recommend to everyone to read it. You know, this is by design. All of this that is happening is by design. And so um, when we talk about oppression and helping people have an analysis and connecting the dots, we need to know that we have arrived at a point that has been orchestrated that started in the late fifties. We have, we have people, um, academics and, and people with lots of money. So wealthy people, the ruling class, we have people who have wanted freedom of capitalism over democracy. And so people have chosen the all American dollar as a way of liberty and freedom rather than this participatory democracy. And so because people have chosen wealth and the accumulation of wealth and capitalism as a means of freedom, we have arrived at a point where our democracy is on the brink of collapse. And nobody wants to give up that, that power, right? And no mean, one wants to give it, up that power. I mean, giving up that power means relinquishing to the others among us. Right. And I mean, you know, anyone who. Which you're called takers. Which you're right. called takers, right? Right. Right. I mean, we need to be clear about this language. This is how marginalized people are talked about. There, there are givers and there are takers or there are makers and there are takers. That if you make the money, you should be able to hold on to it. And if you don't make the money, you should be able to take it. Right. And yet, you know, we are, we are part of a, of a structural system that sees the desire for true democracy. Democracy, not as it relates specific, just to politics, but true democracy and, and that understanding of what democracy can and should be in our lives held up with integrity by those who are identified solely as the takers. Right. I mean, you know, we, we have a, we have an, there's an absolute, you know, kind of backwardsness to the fact that 
the search for and the desire for truth and faithfulness and democracy sits at the feet of and 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 lies in the hearts of those who have been most marginalized throughout history. That's right. That's right. So yeah, that's breaking my heart. Yeah. Well, um, what's breaking my heart is just how polarized everything is. I feel like we can't have a conversation with anybody these days unless yeah. you're on the right side of the party. Yeah. Everybody, everybody is suspicious yeah. of an ulterior motive, of an agenda, of a perspective that is going to cause them to have to then interrogate their own belief structure. Right. Um, I mean, I have people in my family who don't want to have deep interrogating conversations because I think they actually don't know what they believe uh-huh. and, and can't verbalize it and therefore are afraid to, you know, have a conversation that, that asks them to, you know, to, to dive deeply into a topic that, that, you know, on the surface level, they can just simply say it's black or it's white. Right. They don't, they don't want to have to interrogate the grays. Right. The other thing that's breaking my heart is I read on Facebook that one of my colleagues, their, their child attempted suicide oh. and, and they're non-binary. And as a non-binary transgender person myself, it's becoming harder and harder to live. And so I'm, I'm really heartbroken by the young people who don't see a future in this world. And it's because of the polarization that, that they don't see a future. And so I think they're related for me. Yeah, I hear you there. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard for me to talk about the topic of suicide. Um, we may get into that, you know, in a few episodes, but, um, it's, it, it, um, I know it's close to your heart. Yeah. It's very close to me. And, um, and while, you know, my experience, um, with losing someone to suicide was not related to, um, identity or, um, the unwillingness of others in her life to see her as whole and, and, you know, full in exactly who she was. Um, I, you know, that I'm, I, I lament and I feel this hole in my heart every single time I hear about someone that is, um, that is struggling and that's opting for the departure of this world over, then, you know, that, that, that someone feels like leaving is a better option than being unloved. Right. And I, and I get that. I yeah. get why people feel that that's the case. Yeah. yeah. Man. It's been a crazy week, Robin. Yeah. So we, okay. So that was some heavy shit. That was heavy. Um, yeah. Um, but 
So we're going to talk about, we're going to, we're going to kind of go a little further on some of the, some of the places that I am, am feeling brokenhearted and talk a little bit more about politics, a yep. little bit more about the election, um, and kind of what we feel like we're up against for 2020. I had the opportunity, uh, last week to go to Des Moines, Iowa and spend a few days with the folks from Vote Common Good. Um, if you aren't familiar with Vote Common Good, um, this is an organization that started in 2000 and prior to 2018 um, with a hope of uh, flipping the House and the Senate in order for there to be uh, a more cohesive blend of Democrats and independents and Republicans managing the country. I mean, it was no secret when Donald Trump was elected that a lot of us kind of lost our sense of balance about, you know, what kind of world we thought we were living in. Um, and Vote Common Good kind of started with this intent to ask people who were voting in the 2018 election to make the common good their criteria for how they voted for public officials, meaning not to think about their own agenda, not to think about the way that their own taxes were going to increase or the way that um a specific hot button issue might affect them personally, but to think about the way that policy in general affected everyone in the world or everyone in the country around this concept of the common good. Um, I mean, when the Hebrew, Hebrew scripture says to treat the alien and the refugee as you would want to be treated because God desires compassion for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the vulnerable, that is seeking the common good. Um, we don't use our own interests to get what we want. We use the love for others to get what we want. And regardless of whether you come from a faith, uh, a Christian faith tradition or Muslim or Jewish or, or any number of traditions, there's a common understanding um, within all of us who have some kind of a faith-centric Missive in our, in our hearts and our heads that, um, selfish people are not the kind of people that are engaged or desire the common good in the world. We're gonna, we're gonna welcome Doug Pageant in a few minutes into this conversation. Doug is the, um, director of Vote Common Good and one of the founders of it. And, um, I think before we, we bring Doug in and before I, um, I tell you, you know, kind of what my experience with Vote Common Good was. Um, I want you all to hear um, that, you know, Robin and I um, are going to be engaging with voices other than ours um, on on a fairly regular basis. Um, as we do that, we think it's important that we recognize the privilege that we bring to this work. But we want you all to know that we also acknowledge that we're going to be inviting into the space people with great privilege specifically cis, straight, white men. And when we do this, we acknowledge that this type of imitation can seem problematic to some of you. So we want you to know that we recognize this. 
that we're being very intentional about the ways we invite folks, um, that we do so when the space that these persons represent hold a necessary conversation for us. Um, we are going to be as uh, frank as we can with our guests in asking them how they're divesting of their privilege and their patriarchy within the organizations that they're a part of. But we do want you to continue to be in conversation with us as we navigate this space. Um, I think it's important to Robin and I that you both hear that we say that, um, you know, when we're about to bring, a, you know, a straight white dude on the podcast to have a conversation with us. The patriarchy. The patriarchy, right. And, like, we're not trying to advance the patriarchy. Never. But we are trying to build bridges. Yeah. And I, and, and I think, you know, and, and there are conversations that are necessary for us to have in light of this need for us to know what's going on in the world and kind of what space in it we occupy. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, I mean, Doug's a good friend of both of ours. Um, I've done a lot of work with Doug in the world, uh, over the last, you know, probably 10 or a dozen years. Um, but you know, Doug and, and his colleagues are doing some really important work with Vote Common Good. You know, one of the most important things I think that's a part of the work that they're doing is that they're specifically looking at faith-centric voters. So voters who recognize that their faith calls them to vote the way that they do. And in asking them to vote common good, in asking them to think about the way that they're going to um, vote in 2020, um, you know, Doug and his team are, are embarking on this really amazing quest across the country um, in a bus which you'll hear a little bit more about from Doug um, in a few minutes. But I, I think that, you know, there is something to be said as we're talking about this work of bridging in engaging with, you know, what we would commonly term as the white evangelical, in some cases, fundamentalist voter um, who believes that in almost every case, voting as a Republican is what they are asked to do. Um, voting, you know, issues and, and, and policies that are funded and fueled and conversation that is, that is structured by the Christian right. And I think Vote Common Good is asking all of us, not just not just the religious right and and evangelical voters, but specifically voters who believe or have voted for Republicans in the past, to think about what it might mean to divest their privilege and divest their um, their need for power in order to be a part of the common good. Right, and what what's what's reality for so many people? Is that there is no choice. They, they don't get taught that there's a choice to vote. You vote your ideology. You vote, you know, people aren't even told to vote their conscience. People right. are just told to vote a certain way. Right. And so, you know, what I understand vote common good being able to do is helping people 
develop that agency, that inherent agency that, that, that folks have, which is, which is what we all need to be doing. Right. Yeah. It's exciting. So why don't we bring Doug into the conversation? Why don't we um, invite Doug Padgett in and we'll hear a little bit about the common good. Well, we're really excited, friends, to have Doug Padgett uh, on the podcast with us. Um, Doug is uh, one of the brains behind Vote Common Good, and Doug is actually on the Vote Common Good bus as we talk with him. So if you hear a little bit of road noise, that's the excitement that comes with being on a bus and living on a bus full time. I'm sure Doug will tell us all about that. Um, but Doug, welcome. We're really, really glad to have you with us. Well, hey, Anna and Robin. Yeah, I am on the bus. Uh, it's this big tour bus, uh, like a band touring bus. I'm more the rock band touring bus size than the, like, school band. Uh, and we're driving from Fresno, California, down to Los Angeles. So I'm, I'm oh, wow. driving some part of the country right now. Um, and we started our tour, uh, I guess, 18 days ago in front of the White House. And we plan to keep this tour going if we can keep ourselves alive, healthy, and funded through uh, November 3rd, 2020, which is Election Day. And uh, you know, our, what we're trying to do here is to inspire and energize and mobilize people of faith in, to make the common good their voting criteria and to use faith, hope, and love to see a change in the presidency and election day. And Doug, I'm curious about something because, um, as we all know, we're very divided right now in this country and everything is very polarized. And so how do we actually mobilize people around faith, hope and love when maybe we understand those terms differently? How, how do we actually bridge together for a common good when we are so polarized? Yeah, boy, that, I mean, that feels like our question every day that we're asking ourselves as we, as we do this work. And our approach is to find those who are already motivated by faith, however they define that. You know, those of us on this tour, we all think of faith in our own, our own ways. And we're not trying to tell someone what faith, what hope, what love, or even what common good is. We just want to partner with anyone who's comfortable organizing around those ideas. So um, it's it's kind of like in a natural disaster where a lot of people with different visions for what a town should look like after the um, cleanup of a natural disaster has taken place um, will still come together while the rapid response to the disaster has to happen. And uh, I I firmly believe that the Trump administration is a hazard to the well-being of the planet and to all living things on it. And we're trying to pull together the people who want to respond to that. Um, uh, who Anyone who's willing to be involved, you know, we like to say across the board and across the country, we'll take anyone, which is kind of refreshing, right? Because um, so often a lot of the mobilizing and work that I've done has required a lot of um careful curating of what the project is and who's engaged and what making sure that we're hearing from the many, many voices that often feel left out. Um, and there's something about this natural, the natural flow of 
the election, which says, you know, this just takes everybody and anybody who will throw in to do something about um, preventing the reelection of Donald Trump. I love that analogy of a national disaster or a natural disaster. I mean, I think we understand natural disasters. We are now experiencing a national disaster. (laughs) I was like, that was the right word, Anna. That was the right word. National disaster is really kind of what we're up against. Um, you know, what do you say to folks who, uh, who come back with you, uh, with their, you know, their normal diatribes, their, you know, their questions or their affirmations that, you know, look, like I'm a card carrying Republican. I don't necessarily like what Trump's doing, but I've voted red my entire life and I'm not going to quit now. And, you know, I don't, I don't like him, but this is who I am and this is what I do. Um, how, how is Vote Common Good kind of handling or working their way through those kinds of conversations? You know, we haven't yet had a room full of only people who would identify that way, but I look forward to that day. Um, because <laughs> we're, one of the things we're not trying to do is we're, we're not asking Republicans to stop being Republicans. We're just asking them not to vote for this one this time. And, that we're asking people to consider that their faith, if they're a person of faith, might ask them to do something they've never done before for the common good. Because if your faith Mm. doesn't demand that you act differently than your habitual behaviors, then you might not be acting in faith at all. You might just be acting in habitual behaviors. And we think that's part of what's gotten us into this trouble. So we're inviting people of faith to join into the community of common good and that their faith might require them to do something or stand with someone or vote for someone that they would have never voted for before. And we're not trying to convince people that Donald Trump is a problem. You know, if if you don't already think Donald Trump is a problem by the way he behaves and the policies that his administration is put into place, then there's nothing we could say that's going to convince you of that. But if you are pretty right. sure he's a problem, vote common good isn't going to be isn't going to mitigate that. Yeah, it's like if you think all that's going great, there's there's no number of well crafted speeches or songs we could put together to help you, uh, you know, see the light on that on that matter. Right. Um, but if right. you have seen that it's a problem and you don't know that you have another way out, which frankly, Anna, to your question, is what we hear all the time. I heard it just the other day in Denver. A voter said to me, "Well, what was my alternative in 2016?" You know, she really felt like she was powerless to make a good choice. So we talked a bit about, you know, in 2020, you have a chance to make a, to make the right choice. And the right choice might be to not vote for Donald Trump. Now, it might not mean voting for a Democrat. You might not have to change teams, to borrow that metaphor. But you sure don't have to, you know, pay your season ticket this year. And right. that's so that's the approach that we try to take. One of the things that we talk about at the Activist Theology Project and with Activist Theology in general is that finding the ways to be with one another and to bridge these divides is not really bridging together red and blue or doing bipartisan work. And so when, when you're out on the bus and you're, and you're talking to folks, I can imagine that, that some people's reaction is, well, you just want me to vote blue, but that's not really what you're doing. You're, you're just asking people not to vote for 
to continue the the national disaster. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We're we're asking them to feel like they have more agency than they than they might be told that they have in the in the voting world. And which means that, you know, you can vote for someone else. You can send it out. I don't know. You can vote for Trump, whatever, but that it is a choice you have to make and you're, you're not, uh, simply asked to, um, follow along and behave in the way that, um, you did in, in 2016, uh, that you have a lot of choices and that faith and hope and love are meant to be, um, open and expansive notions of the human spirit that want to, call us beyond this sort of limited set of options about what we could possibly do. Yeah. And Doug, I I mean, I know I'm familiar with your work just from the emergent church stuff and feel very curious about whether if this is the most political work that you've done in, in your vocation. Yeah, I ran for office in 2010. Uh, I tried to be a candidate for the Minnesota State Legislature, so that was even more directly, personally political. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is this is by far the most direct electoral work that I've ever done, um, and uh, I really like it. So I don't know. I, I don't think I'm done with it, uh, even after the the cleanup is finished from this natural disaster. Um, yeah. It seems like something I want to want to keep with. Great. So, Doug, tell us a little bit about what events look like for you. You're traveling from city to city. You're kind of moving from place to place across the country. Um, if folks go to the Vote Common Good website, they can see kind of the initial footprint that you all have planned out for where you're headed over the next few months. Tell me, tell me what it looks like once you kind of land in a city and, and the bus pulls up. What, what kind of work are you doing once you're on the ground? So we do a few kinds of events. Uh, we do rallies, which are kind of well programmed 90 minutes, uh, events where we'll have speakers and musicians and candidates if they're available, uh, built around faith, hope and love. And each of those words corresponds with Wake up, speak up, stand up. So we like to say that your faith calls you to wake up, your hope calls you to speak up, and love calls you to stand up. And so we have uh, invitations and engagements around each of those. So that's our rally events. And then we do roundtable or training events um, that are for either candidates or for leaders or organizers in a city. And then we also run... Uh, these poll parties, which will start during the primary and um, get ready to do on election day, where we're inviting people to turn their polling place into a party atmosphere akin to a, you know, a, a 5K race or a, a walk for charity kind of thing where people cheer each other on and act like your engagement in civic life is something to be, um, you know, celebrated. So, so that's what we do. So when we pull into a town, um, you know, we'll, we'll get in a few hours early. We look at the site. We start getting set up. It takes a couple of hours to do that. And, uh, and we sleep in the bus. So the bus will either stay in a hotel parking lot or in a, uh, in a, the church event lot. And, um, and so most of us stay, stay right in the bus and it, it becomes sort of life central for us being in the bus. 
So it's exciting. I'm going to actually be jumping on the bus in uh, a few weeks. Um, I'll be joining the Vote Common Good tour starting in, Al- in Alabama uh, and kind of riding along with everyone, uh, probably up through St. Louis. So if folks are in Alabama and Louisiana and Mississippi and, and Missouri, then um, I may get to see you along the way, but that bus life is really intriguing for me um, because I like to joke that, you know, my idea of like camping or traveling is an airplane and the Marriott. And so I'm <laughs> really interested in, um, interested is my, my um, non-threatening way to say a little scared about what bus life is going to be like for me <laughs> once I'm riding alongside you guys. Um, but I'm really excited about it. Um, tell me a little bit about who is in the bus with you. Who's kind of doing this, this work with you real time for the majority of the tour? Yeah, it's a, it's a rolling group of people <clears throat> that will be with us, uh, at, at different times. The bus has 12 bunks in it and can take about 12 people riding in the bus at a time. So we'll often have, uh, eight or nine or 10, sometimes, uh, full 12. Uh, people in the bus and uh, we travel are we have two primary musicians one's name is Mia Pace um, Mia's in the um, uh, revival uh, women's revival chorus and also a band called Chick 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 and uh, the other one is a and person she's named amazing. Vince she's amazing and a person out in out of uh, New York named Vince Anderson uh, and then we travel with other musicians so um, that we'll pick up along the way um, so if there's any musicians that are with us, uh, or the want to join us, we'd be glad to talk about that. And then we have, uh, different speakers that are, are, uh, that will travel with us for a week or so at a time, two weeks. Some of us stay on the bus, uh, most of the time. There's sort of a core group, um, uh, of us that are, that are at most all of the events and kind of make sure that the backbone of the whole thing happens. Um, so it's, you know, we're, we're not as sophisticated as a full traveling band. Like a lot of us are more like a startup. It's more like a startup band where a lot of us are doing all the work. You know, we do our lo- own load ins and load outs and our own setup and all that. And you know, you're working in pretty it's small spaces. Good. I don't know if you can hear right now, but I'm in the back part of the bus where there's like a little L shaped seating area and a table. And so, you know, our designer, one of our uh, speakers are working on something, you know, that are, three and a half feet away from me and seven people are sitting up in the front of the bus and a couple people are taking naps. So, you know, you're just kind of all right on top of each other uh, while you drive and, and do this work. And, you know, everyone's just doing their thing and it kind of feels like you're sitting on a public bus or working in a, in a coffee shop. Um, but a really, really tiny coffee shop. And with people all the time. All the time. So for the for the intense introvert, it may not be the best thing to do. I told Anna I'd meet her in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's funny. Like you just find your. If, I, I, I'm not an introvert, but they, they, we do have them along with us, and you just find your way to do it, right? You put your headphones on, or you climb into a bunk, or you know, you you find a way to uh, to keep yourself uh, alive and healthy. And- As is. Typical with bus life and traveling on the road and traveling in between cell towers, uh, Doug left us for a few minutes. Um, I know that if Doug were closing and kind of coming back with us and saying uh, what he, how he would want everybody to be informed, he'd let you know that you should go to 
votecommongood.com. And you can look at the 2020 tour tab. You can see where the bus tour is headed. And feel free to show up at those events, um, follow their Facebook page. They'll have much more information about where they'll be and how they'll be engaged um, in those areas and in those spaces. Um, so Doug would also ask that if you are able, please go to Vote Common Good and donate to this. The bus is not cheap to take around the country. There's a lot of diesel consumed. Uh, they like to say, and we like to say, I say I should say we because I'm a part of this Vote Common Good work. We like to say that we like for the folks that are at the event to then pay it forward and get the bus to the next town. Can we talk about just that phrase, common good, for a minute? Yeah. Because good is a contested term. Mm. What is counted as good in society is not agreed upon by everyone. And so how do we, as folks who want to really see democracy come back alive again, how do we how do we vote for the common good when both what is held in common is not held in common and good is a contested term ah oh, shit and this and, and see this is why this is why having a podcast with dr robin is is innately difficult for me folks because I always know what I want to say. And then I feel like when I have to answer questions like that or come in contact with, you know, things like Dr. Robin just asked us to interrogate, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. But this is why it's so important for us to be in conversation right. because this is what is building the common good. This is why we have this bridge. I know. I just feel like I'm speaking for the commoner. I'm speaking for the people who just aren't smart like you. You're are. brilliant. Uh, well, I'm brilliant about some things like football and hockey and sports-ish things and music. And I don't know. I don't. I, well, this, this is why we're a good team. Anyway. Let's talk about what we mean by the common good. Yeah. yeah so, so I, yeah. Well, I, I digress. Just, I, <laughs> no, I digress. <laughs> no, I'm just curious about this because what the dominant culture says is good or what the dominant culture holds in common is not parallel to what is counted as good in the most vulnerable communities. Right. And so I want our listeners to be clear that we have an analysis around this and that vote common good. We don't, we don't approach vote common good without, without also interrogating the framework and, and the language that is being used. We don't, we don't just accept it at face value. And so in this culture, Whiteness is what's considered good. It's what, and it's what's held in common and what has the most power. Right. And so if we want to vote common good, the dominant culture holds good as what's, as what's, um, is what's most important. 
if we're trying to eradicate oppression and dismantle supremacy culture, then how do we, how do we get people of color and those who are most impacted by multi-system oppressions to vote white? Which is what's counted good for the dominant culture. Or how do we flip the script and get the dominant culture to recognize that truly in, that in order for us to be common in our collective liberation and working towards a liberation that is in common for all, the dominant culture actually should be working to create more parity with the marginalized and, and should be voting in order to facilitate the common good for those that aren't like them. Yeah. How do we do that? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have ideas. I think that we, I mean, I, I, I think it, I think it comes down to conversation. It comes down to, you know, helping white folk understand where their privilege is is built um, on on what kinds of structures of power their ability to do what they do in the world happens um, you know but but it but it is I, I mean I would love to think that this is something that we could find answers to you know in the next in the next generation. Right. Um, I, I don't know that we have the capacity to get there. But what I do hope is that we are a people that are mindful enough of the segmented ways in which voting happens. Um, and I mean, take out of consideration the ways in which we, you know, set up, um, you know, constraints around physical voting for people. That are, that are part of, of, um, underserved communities, but just about the message of voting and the message that we're trying to get across. I, I don't know that we can get there in this generation. I mean, I, yeah. I wish I was a little more, uh, glass half full kind of person, but I don't, I'm not feeling that today. Well, you know, I'm, I am, I'm a utopian thinker. I really believe in, um, the kingdom of heaven on earth. I know people probably have problem. People are like, Oh my God, they said kingdom, but it's, I, you know, I don't know. I'm a traditionalist sometimes, but that, that, that we can really have the beloved community. I mean, if we don't think in utopian parameters, we lose hope. And so for me, um, we may not see it. I mean, I'm, I'm pessimistic that, that the current system we have in place will do anything to change those who are most impacted by it. But I have to be utopian and believe that we can build this thing from the ground up. Because if I don't think that, then I just bury my head and I sleep all day and I'm depressed and, you know, I devolve. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. You sleep all day anyway. Well, that's true. That's, that's the T right there. That is the T. I mean, Let's really talk about it. Uh, no, but you're right. Um, I think that, yeah, I don't know. I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted because I believe that 
in order for us to make uh, urgent and, um, you know, fairly quick change, we are going to have to ask hard things of our friends of color um, and our friends that are queer and our friends that are immigrants um, and our friends that are otherly abled for them to vote in order to allow those in privilege, i.e. those who are white, to work best on their behalf. That I mean, that's the most, that's the quickest or the most um, uh, straight path to policy change right now. Right. And yet it it is this kind of utopian belief or this, you know, beautiful dream that we as white folks, me as a white person can divest myself fully of all things that are necessary for me to hold on to privilege and power in the world so that it is the people that I care most about in communities that are unlike mine that have the power and the privilege at their disposal first and foremost. Yeah. What I, what I don't want people to hear is that, um, that white people should be in power. That's not what you're saying. Correct. The, the reality is we have set up a system that, that, um, significantly, that disproportionately disenfranchises people of color, especially black folks from ha- from holding political office. Yes. We can talk about how moderate and in the middle Barack Obama was and how maybe he was part of the oligarchy that is, you know, white wealthy men. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. That's, that's chasing a rabbit that we're not going to do today. But just because there was a black president elected does not mean that people of color and black people in particular are no longer disenfranchised. Absolutely. And so, um, the reality that we have is that white people hold the majority of public office. I know there are more women of color in office than there ever has been, but, but it doesn't outweigh the percentage of white folks, men and women that are, that are, that are in office. And so what you're not saying is that you believe white people should be in power. No, that's not what you're saying. But what you are saying is that given the circumstances that we have in this moment, that we need those who are most impacted by this system to trust a little bit more. So a uh, quick, quick bit of information. Um, 22% of the members of our house and Senate are racial or ethnic minorities. So 22%. as of right now, 78% of our, of the United States, Congress is still considered is, is still identifies as white. Right. Yeah. Which is a large majority. It's, it's massive. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, twenty two percent is is higher than it's ever been. Yeah, um, it was an eighty three percent increase over the Congress of two thousand one to two thousand three which had only 63 minority members compared to our, our 116 now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, still it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a drastic. Yeah. So, so, so I think, I think white folks need to be asking themselves, are we asking too much of those who are most impacted by this system? Are we asking too much of them? And if we are, how do we change that? And is that the work of divestment of their power for yeah, white people? It's a good question. It's a good question. Okay, so you're going to get on the Vote Common Good bus. I am. I, I, like I said, I'm a little nervous. Um, I mean, look, like who wants to share like one bathroom with a bunch of smelly guys? I mean, yeah, I, not, not me. me. Not me. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and I don't like I, the bunk part doesn't really bother me as long as there's enough room for my hair products. But right. I mean, I'm, yeah, like I'm, I'm so look, I'm really excited to be a part of conversation. I, I think that, um, you know, so interestingly enough, when I was at Vote Common Good in Des Moines, I heard a lot of conversations around the work of the election for, for 2020 around about um, immigration reform and um, you know, equity for the poor uh, healthcare. Um, uh, you know, I, I heard a lot about all of the hot button issues, but the one thing yeah. that I didn't hear talked about very much at all was um, equity and continued enforcement of fairness for queer folk in the country. And um, I, I challenged a couple of candidates that I talked with when I was in Des Moines about why this message has started to leave the conversation, yeah. has started to not be lifted up as, as important or as something that is still a, a challenge um, that, that a lot of folks are facing. I mean, just like you mentioned that, you know, people think that because we had the first black president that, you know, black folks have now arrived right. and that things are so much easier. Um, it, right. I mean, it couldn't be farther from the truth in the same way that, you know, just because we have marriage equality um, That's right. that, you know, I mean, trans black women are, are still being killed Um it, at a, at a higher rate than, than anyone else. Um, right. I mean, you know, there are things that we need to fix and, and I'm, so I'm excited to be on the tour. Um, I'm excited to be in spaces predominantly in the South. Yeah. I'll be, like I said, in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana primarily where, you know, th- though that's a, that's a piece of the conversation that isn't being talked about a lot from our debate stages. And it's not being yeah. talked about a lot in our town halls. And, um, you know, I want to be a little bit of a thorn in the side to folks and, and ask Good. some hard questions around that. So maybe yeah. I'll meet you down in uh, New Orleans. I know why you want to meet me in New Orleans. You don't want to meet me for the boat common good. You want to meet me because you want me to show you around the quarter. Well, I mean, that's okay too. <laughs> as long as we get our work done, boo. As long as we get our work done. Okay, girl. Okay. All right. 
So, um, this was a great conversation today. I, I love that. I love that we're talking politics. I love that we're getting our hands dirty. I love that we're um, engaging with people and, and allowing people to figure out how they can do this work in the world. Um, if Vote Common Good seems like it would be a great place for you to plug in, I encourage you to do so. But we'd also love you to plug in with us. We'd love you to visit activisttheology.com and see the ways in which you want to engage with us. We'd love for you to help contribute for us to underwrite this podcast. I mean, it's no secret that, um, you know, this kind of thing doesn't happen without time and specifically monetary investment. Um, and I like had to buy particular gear for this. We did. We hope, we hope that this week we actually sound better. Um, we realized after week one that things needed to be, uh, Upgraded. Up upgraded. upgraded. So, upgraded. yeah. So, yeah. So we both, um, invested in some equipment this week that, um, I mean, I don't know about you, but my bank account didn't want to, didn't want to do it. Um, right. and so, you know, we'd love for you to engage with us. We'd love for you to see what kind of work we're doing in the world. Um, we'll be back again next week, uh, talking about, um, I don't know, something important. Um, until then, Dr. Robin, I'm really, I'm really excited to be alongside you in this. Me too, Pastor. I'll see you next week. All right. Talk to you later. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support the podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray, our friends. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Hands dirty, I show up so early, they show me no.